Hello, Rachel. Hello, Ryan. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I am feeling fantastic. I we've re, 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 we've reached the end of a working week, and now Babylon Five is in our laps again. Mm-hmm. We're we're in the season four stride. Yes, we did get interrupted by third third space for a little bit there, but I am just thrilled to be talking Babylon Five with you. No. So how are you? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm. I'm excited to talk about this episode. Oh, we're talking about an episode of of the show, and yes. uh, we're we're not alone. No, we've dragged somebody in, somebody mm-hmm. who uh, we're a fan of, uh, but I uh, haven't had on the pod. I've done some pod stuff with this person on other things, but not on our main feed, not on our own show. We are joined by Mike from Grey Sector Pod. Hello, Mike. Hi to both of you. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, Mike, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your podcast? Yeah, so I, I'm. This is Mike from Gray Sector Pod, and um, you know, Gray spelled G R E Y because Babylon Five, as we all know, was funded by the Minbari but built by the French. Um, mm-hmm. Not to be confused with Gray Seventeen Pod, uh, mm-hmm. which is much more popular than us, and I haven't listened very much, but probably better than us. However, we came first. I just need to point that out. Even though we're slower, uh, even though we release slower and we're way behind them, we did come first. We we launched our pod, I think, a couple months before they did. But but yeah, we're we're similar, but we are different podcasts. And the three of us, uh, Sarah, Joe, and I, uh, we just riff on episodes just like you guys talk about them, have fun with them. This one's really fun. I, I was I was really glad when you when you invited me on and you said let's do this one, and I said, oh, this is gonna be fun. You see these boxes here, All right? Pretend there's a very large dragon on the other side of the cargo hold. And if you pass this point, Mm. it will eat you. So today we are breaking down um, season four, episode 10, Racing Mars. And the the DVD summary, I love these because these are are different than Mm -hmm. the IMDb and they're different than the Lurker's Guide in many cases. Tales of Insidiousness. Garibaldi becomes part of a Stop Sheridan scheme. And Franklin's mission to meet with resistance leaders on Mars is imperiled by an alien parasite. I love that it's Franklin's mission. Like, like Marcus just, they yeah. fucking mention him. He's just like, Marcus just doesn't no, exist. He's there as a bodyguard. It's not his mission. Shut the hell up, Marcus. We aren't even going to mention you in the description. By the way, Ivanova has a plot too. <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't, we don't remember the plot with the women. That doesn't, that doesn't get oh, mentioned. Yeah. Oh, but we, sorry. We, we'll never forget Delenn's sexy surprise that you'll deliver to us. So, uh, yes, Racing Mars is is just a joyous time. It's one of my go-to episodes when I think of a, a lighter affair for, for yeah. B5. Season 4 is very much a high-octane, everything bleeds into one another. Heavy. Heavy. The, the tone is far more streamlined. You don't get those wackier episodes as much you don't get sick transit v or anymore as an episode you don't get even voices of authority which also has an all over the place tone but racing mars is is the closest to revisiting that fun and it is just one that brings a smile to my face every time it is just one of those uh, just random episodes that if you saw it on tv you'd go Hey, this isn't one of the top ten B five episodes, but I'm not I'm not changing the channel either. This this is just 
ah, just such a bowler's hat every time. And most people I, I show this to who are new fans or old just sit back and go, that that was that was a, there's some there's some uh, funny quips in there there's there's cool dynamics and yeah there's some sci-fi plots as well Rachel what about you racing Mars I oh, this whole episode sneaks up on me in a weird way because I always think that it's later in the season than it is and I'm always super keen for it I'm like yes. Yes, I want this. I want this now, and I want this more. <laughs> you actually discussed Racing Mars on another Babylon 5 podcast, the last best Babylon 5 podcast, who are renowned for being Marcus haters, and you had to step in there and defend his honour in I one did. of his shining moments, Racing Mars. I did, and they were basically like, he's still shit, though. <laughs> But he's good in this one. He's, he's okay here. <laughs> because the show acknowledges that he's annoying. Yeah. That, that, that they is... liked Franklin as the straight man to Marcus. Oh, Franklin being the straight man is... is uh, oh, there's so much to say about that. Mike, what is your overall history's thoughts and relationship with Racing Mars? Like you said, you were pretty keen to see that this was the one we uh, lobbied at you to come on with. But uh, what's your overall uh, uh, relationship and history with it? I would agree with everything Rachel said. I, I don't love Marcus as a character. I, I do find him. He has, but I, I love that you defended his chaste virginal, you know, sanctity um, for them, for them knocking him. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. Like you said, the dynamics, I love some of the, the quirky little reveals that we get into about the, the cover relationship between Marcus <laughs> and Franklin. Um, I just love, I just love like this just episode is just, it's just funny. Like you said, it's, it's not quite a one-off, but it's also definitely not critical to the se- most much of the season four plot. There's a little bit of stuff in there with the Sheridan, you know, Garibaldi stuff and some of the setting up the Mars resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like setting some stuff up, but it's not like an absolutely critical episode in the season. There is a lot of fluff and a lot of fun. And, you know, I think about the dynamic, especially, you know, we'll get into it with captain Jack and Marcus and Franklin at the beginning, like the first third or half of the episode or whatever that is where they're kind of on the ship. It's just hilarious. It's just fun television. We haven't mentioned it yet. I know Rachel hoped that we were going to avoid mm-hmm. it, but I know everyone's screaming at the top of their lungs, especially especially our guest. Why are we called Yum Yum Podcast? Mm-hmm. Mike, do you actually know why we're called Yum Yum Podcast? I, I've heard this story because I, I've, I've listened to some episodes, um, and this goes back to Star Trek Discovery, right? Yeah. 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 And there's a character. Now, I haven't watched any Star Trek Discovery. A shame. A shame no, for you. No, it's, no, it's, that's a blessing. It's ending soon, so you can watch all of it. Come no. on. Catch up. No. During the height of an action sequence, a uh, future Oscar winner, perhaps, or at least Oscar nominee Michelle Yeoh turns around to this character that's barely been in the show, has barely any lines of dialogue, and asks them, hey, do you want to help me kill the lead antagonist of the show thus far? And this character, we don't know anything about her, but she flicks her hair back, lick, licks her lips sexily, and says, yum, yum. That's the answer. And uh, my, I, I mean, my, my soul left my body when that happened. We had to name the podcast after it. And I have to, I have to give it over to, to you, Mike. Who in this particular episode of Babylon 5 could have done that? Who could have said yum yum 
in your eyes? I, I think this is not even a question. I, I think there's a character that literally might have said those words. Captain Jack. Yum, yum. Captain like, Jack. Like he had his little like packets of food. He's just eating like this guy's hilarious. Like he's fantastic. He, he's he, a great character. He's definitely a yum, yum contender for me. I would also have to. It's an obvious choice. It always is. But Marcus exudes yum, yum energy with every single line he has. He is chomping at the bit it was it would have been one of those quips he made about them being married or or the ceremony or any of it i have a third contender rachel's third contender who the chick with the face tattoo no okay no number two. Oh, number two him he's a gruff guy i'd love to hear him say it in that voice yum yum <laughs> i'm a ranger and so well you were a long way from texas son and that ain't the right accent. Let's go. Marcus and Franklin is the glue that holds the episode together. Racing Mars is often remembered as the beginning of a beautiful friendship between the two, even though we had Exogenesis already, the one where the parasites take over the homeless. But that's a bad episode, so we don't we don't acknowledge that. And they didn't even get to do that much together in it, but This is all about the dynamic of the two characters as well as the actors themselves. And we praise so many of the amazing duos in this show. This show is very good with its ensemble and pairings and many pairings that are obvious, Londo and Jakar, of course, but pairings that you don't see coming that you enjoy nonetheless. And this is one of those where I remember vividly thinking, oh, I don't know how how Franklin and Marcus will interact. But then once you see it, you go, of course, of course, that Franklin is this put upon straight man who's miserable. And Marcus is the theater kid who's got an, an exuberant amount of energy and won't shut the fuck up. And it's a comedy pairing that is as old as time, but it works for a reason. It really works for a reason. Just even seeing that establishing shot of Marcus looking through the porthole and his hair's hanging down and he's just like a kid, just playing these, you know, playing I Spy and you cut to Franklin and he's just, he's, he's the adult in the room who really doesn't want to have to be dealing with these petty, petty things, but he's here nonetheless. Mike, for you... When it comes to these pairings in Babylon 5, there's so many of them that are, are beautiful to watch, but what do you think about the, the Franklin and Marcus uh, relationship? I love it. I love that they play off each other so well, and, and it's, it's, it's proof that JMS is, as we can see, we've already known this, right, that he's good at writing humor. Right. And, but sometimes that humor can be fairly dry. And in, in cases like this, sometimes that humor is just about the hilarious dynamic. They are kind I mean, it's funny. They're, they're playing a young married couple. They kind of act like an old married couple though. Right. Like they're, they're kind mm. of like, they're, they're a little bit like, you know, as you said, Franklin's like the adult in the room and he's sort of like, Oh man, do I have to keep dealing with you? Like you're really annoying. And, and Marcus is like, Oh, it's a new guy. I I'm going to capture him. And then like, let's, let's talk to him and play with the new guy. And Franklin's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, it's, it's just a cute, funny dynamic. And I absolutely love that when Captain Jack explains that their cover is that they're a young married couple on, on honeymoon and, <laughs> and Franklin is just like, now you've got to remember this was the nineties. Right. So hmm. so the idea of like two men being married was already pretty weird and unusual, at hmm. least in the United States. Like, 
I remember as a teenage kid who wasn't even fully out yet uh, that when this when this got revealed as a plot twist, I was like, whoa, like that's, you know, between that and the female pope later in the episode, it's like it's like, whoa, we're living in a different universe. Right. But the thing yeah. I loved about the writing. And and Frasier did this too as a show. I was going to say Frasier did this a lot. Frasier did this a lot is they referenced gay people, but it wasn't referenced disparagingly. Mm. And Franklin is not annoyed at the idea that he is in a gay couple or that's his front. Franklin just doesn't want to be married to Marcus because he's just like, man, I have to be married to you. It's not about being better than you. I could Uh, do better than you. He's he's like, God damn it. Like, really? You, the the prissy British guy, the silly British. Oh, God. Okay. Now I have to be married to you. And he rolls his eyes and it's just funny. Like, it's just so good. Um, And I I loved at the time that it was written that way. It wasn't written, you know, Frazier did that too, where they, there were gay characters. There was references to gay things. It was never written disparagingly. It was never written like being gay was bad. It was, it was just sort of like, it was just a, a, facet of you know mm. personality a facet of your your being whatever and it and they they played a lot of humor that way too and this is it's played so well like it's written so well and it's not in any way homophobic i i, I really do like it it's a little silly marcus takes it a little hammy with patterns and gets a little stereotypical at times but i found it hilarious <laughs> but he's a theater kid marcus is that type of guy he takes the bit too far every single time that's his thing with Ivanova, with marcus with garibaldi where the lesson that franklin goes through the the arc that franklin goes through in season four is susan marcus can't be that bad oh wait actually no he is that bad how could i ever have doubted you i'm so sorry but i totally agree with you i thought of fraser as well and then obviously later on you would get shows like uh that would be more direct with it like will and grace and stuff but one of the things i remember being uh just taken aback by when i saw it and and still am today is the sci-fi contemporaries where we the audience would pair them up like oh it's it's Bashir and Garrick where it's like clearly they're gay but they're not going to do anything about it or Paris and Kim and so on and so forth there's so many of them or mm. in uh Space Above and Beyond as well which we recently went through it's like it's it's uh it's our good boy Cooper and West or this or this like we would do that as the audience because there was clearly something there but the show wouldn't even acknowledge the yeah. idea of it but here it's like they acknowledge it directly. And one of the things that makes their relationship brilliant is it's been a passage of time has passed. So when we start with them, they've already got a lived-in relationship that we have not seen develop on the screen. Nice. But between the episodes of Marcus singing the song at him and Franklin being annoyed by that to now we're however many days or weeks later where they're playing I Spy and they just know each other's rhythms already, boxes. Yes. Is it, is it, is it more boxes? Yes. Is it even more boxes? They, they just know how to jab at one another and how the other one's going to talk and act. And that is just such a... In Babylon 5, that makes their relationships grow over a slow period of time. The Marcus and Franklin one just hits off very suddenly and quickly but as a viewer i appreciate that so much because now we don't have to piss about watching it bloom now we just have the flower here and we can smell it, it for all the episodes the that they're into yeah it's 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 beautiful now rachel for you this is one of your favorite episodes you've mentioned this on the podcast yeah. before and it's also because of the the franklin and marcus relationship do you want to kind of talk about some of the points that you like about it and any of the funny moments between the two that stood out oh, you've covered a lot of it already 
I think the I Spy thing is great because it establishes the pattern of their relationship and the attitude that they have towards each other. Mm. And (laughs) I just love how much joy Marcus gets from pissing off Franklin. It's it's great writing, right? It's great show, don't tell. Like it's... It's yeah. it's he's it, JMS is showing us their dynamic and how they interact and how familiar mm-hmm. and comfortable they are with each other, right? And mm-hmm. and how the, they they act like people who have known each other for a few years, right? Not people yeah. who just met because they've been together so intensely, like they've only been interacting with each other for two weeks while being in this high stakes situation and these unusual contexts. So of course it forges a bond that's Mm. very deep and and specific. And I just love how much fun (laughs) their dynamic is. Look, you know, don't misunderstand me, all right? You're a nice guy. I like you. I, I, I respect you. But after being cooped up for two weeks with you, I'm about ready to... And I really hate when you do that. I think this whole Mars plot and pairing Marcus and Franklin together really humanizes Franklin as a character even more because uh, we're Franklin fans, but Franklin's whole entire character is very much about his ego and his arrogance and his failings, as well as his strong convictions and morals. And they had the the drug addiction plotline to bring him down to earth a bit and humanize him in a, in a way. But after the drug addiction plot, what does Franklin do? And Franklin's uh, character is very much being a supportive friend and human rather than the doctor man but here it it, it just makes me so happy to see that he's a character that's allowed to be funny because a lot of the humor i got was not just from marcus but those pained expressions and miserable looks from richard biggs him eating those bars and just how much he he looks haggard from it and you got jack in the background being like oh this is lovely stroganoff i'm loving this and just Richard Biggs just delivering all in his face the comedy that's needed. This was really, uh, you know, for me, the Doctor characters are usually my favorite in science fiction shows, and Franklin has always been an on and off one. But every single rewatch, when I get to this episode, I, I have no doubts that Franklin's a good character because Richard Biggs just is so electric in this deadpan delivery. When uh, Marcus is lamenting the fact of, oh, uh, the one time I'm a war hero and nobody knows about it. And he's bitching about that. And just the look on on, on, on Franklin's face of like, okay, Frank, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's not yeah. the point, Marcus. <sighs> There's a bigger problem. That's, okay. not, that's not the real issue here. And without even having looked up behind the scenes stuff, you could just tell, Right, you could just tell that that Jason Carter and Richard Biggs were friends in real life. You could tell that they got on extremely well. You can see that on the screen, and that's one of the things that, no matter how good a writer is, that's just something you can't put on the script. You have to just luck out with actors who who just have that chemistry in real life and on the screen. And and I, I they really lucked out with these two. It's the biggest 
uh, disappointment is that we don't get more of Biggs and Jason Carter together. Like, just you just want more of them together. I love second what you say about the Franklin, the physical acting. You might even put the the audio drop where he's he's you see his face and he's got that bar in front of him. And he's chewing on it and he's got this look on his face and his eyes. And he's like, do you want me to tell you in medical terms <laughs> what's in this? You know, like, and, and, you know, Captain Jack is like literally on the screen behind him with his little steaming stroganoff going, oh, this is really good. You know, it's just funny. It's so funny. And, you know, thinking back, like you said, the pairings, you know, I'm going to go way back here, but I, I'm thinking back to season one, episode five, the Parliament of Dreams, the first episode where we got, mm-hmm. Julie Caitlin Brown as mm. Natoth and where Natoth and Jakar were solving crimes, trying to find the assassin, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, there's just, a, you know, you know, those episodes, like you said, you know, JMS can write it in and try and, you know, hope that the actors will be able to deliver and, and give extra meat and extra three dimensions to the, the character dynamic. But like when JMS is writing this, right, he's just hoping that that's going to work out and that's going to come across on screen. And, and just as it turns out, these two actors just, fucking hit it out of the ballpark right like they they take those words on the page that are well written and and funny but they just add so much to it in such a great way it's it's fantastic biggs has always been the guy we point to on the podcast as the actor who knew how to play their role from the very beginning i would say especially out of the human characters dr franklin he's the one that he comes performance wise fully formed and the risk of Marcus as a character, because Marcus is a, a character that can be very, uh, he can repel you because he is extra. He's a lot of a lotness. But whatever you think about Marcus as a character, it can't be denied that Jace, uh, Jason Carter adds a, a certain essence to the role that makes it hard to look away. He's very charismatic and very, and just very, uh, you can tell he wants to be there, and so having that even resonate further with his character Marcus, he just wants to be there and just wants to have the last word in and just wants to have a little moan and a bitch, and Franklin doesn't want to be there and doesn't want to be going through this, is is the the meat of racing Mars. There's all of these other things going on. There's a, there's a whole plot on Mars, but in a way, that stuff is irrelevant to my enjoyment. I think a lot of times... And I'm sure we've all gone through this as people who have to break down episodes or listen to people break down episodes or whatever it is, especially with science fiction TV, there's there's this emphasis on we need to talk about the plot. The plot is so important or the themes or the or the arcs. But honestly, that stuff when it comes to racing Mars is almost is completely irrelevant to me, honestly. It is just about the characters hanging out. When we when we do get the Mars plot stuff, it's fine. It's fine. It's a, it's a. Oh no, they they have mistaken our identities, and we could get shot. I don't feel any of the genuine tension out of that because Marx and Franklin aren't either. They're just having a laugh about it. They they have their moments of being worried, but but they they're too busy giving each other the side eye and be like, oh, you see that over there? Marcus gives the I already saw it, Franklin, and then they have a fight scene like. That stuff is one of the things that makes Racing Mars, to me, stand out. Especially in season four, where a lot of it is about the plots and the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. This this one, like we said, it's not quite a canned episode or, or a bottle episode where, where nothing gets out. But it's also definitely not one of the main episodes that drives the plot forward a real long way, right? The Mars plot is... 
you know, it's interesting. It it, mo- it moves things along just a little bit. I mean, the whole point is Franklin's trying to get out here to meet the the leader of the Mars Rebellion. And of course, uh, then he has to go off and sleep with her. Um, but, you know, mm. it, it's like it's 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 entertaining. But you're right. It's it's sort of almost inconsequential. It's this is sort of like much of this episode is just the Marcus and Franklin show and their their funny dynamic. And they happen to meet number two, who's Mr. Grumpy Pants, and then they meet number one, and, you know, she's very pretty and has her shit together. And, um, and yeah, it's it's just, and I, I love, just a quick aside, I love Marcus's co-pilot there. He, he's, <laughs> he's being good wingman. Like, he, he's, he's just like, oh, oh, you found a restaurant. You know, I'll stay here. You guys should go. No, you should go. You go to the restaurant. You do the thing, right? Like, Marcus knows when he needs to step away, which I, I really appreciate that in a character and a friend. Like when when it's like you meet someone or whatever it is, and 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 the the co-pilot or the wingman sort of goes, Oh, my job now is to fuck off. Like that's what I should be doing, is fucking off. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna go away and remove myself from the situation to give you guys more time. And it is funny how JMS dropped that in there too, because obviously nothing happens in this particular episode, but that's gonna be coming up soon, if I remember correctly. Is mm-hmm. Is Stephen has this tendency? I don't know what it is. Like, in all fairness, in all fairness, number one flirts with him. She sees him and is like, "Yes, you're the guy for me." And he's very much like, "Oh, oh okay, I just tackled you into boxes." Oh, where will I find you? The Red Planet Hotel. For some reason, they gave you to the honeymoon suite. <laughs> right. Fine. I'll remind you of this when we decide on custody of the children. I, I, I want to throw it over to you, Rachel. A mm. large thing that's remembered about the Mars plot, we have Captain Jack, of course, but yes. Captain Jack has has a keeper on him. And we've seen the show back and forth a lot. What are the Druck doing here? Like, why do they put a keeper on some random fucking dude in the Mars resistance when their target never really becomes Earth until Crusade? Yeah, I think... Um... It's maybe just a little bit of, oh, they fucked up the shadows on Mars. That's true. So we want to get back at them in general, creating chaos. Because if uh, the Mars resistance is less organized, then that means more bloodshed. Because we learn through this episode and future ones as well, that number one is against targeting civilians. Mm. And if she wasn't there, then they would go back to doing that, most likely. Mm. And, of course, the, the the Keepers may also be aware of uh, Franklin and Marcus's journeys to mm. try and reconnect with Mars and to fuck that up immediately yeah. so that there's just more, they're more disorganized. It's just one of those things where I, I also wonder if this is just JMS reminding us that this is still a plot point that exists like you haven't seen a keeper in a few episodes we put it on the regent but look they're elsewhere remember that this is a thing we've promised to do in the show we they're will follow through on the this galaxy and perhaps also it is a way of making captain jack go from an extremely goofy character to an almost tragic figure and uh I'm sure we'll have plenty more to say about Captain Jack when we talk about that actor's performance in our spotlight section later, but uh, it's never been one that's... That trick hasn't worked on me. JMS, it didn't work. I like it more so of, ooh, a keeper. Ooh, that's creepy. I like those things. They're weird. But 
it is the this shady shit going on Mars. It definitely is putting yeah. the ground. It's definitely laying the groundwork for that. Of Mars is not only corrupted from within, but also from the outside. Obviously, there's that brilliant scene of uh, Captain Jack just telling them how much information they don't get, and what they do get is from outsiders who tell tall tales, and that's how they look at it. Oh, mm-hmm. this what war? Oh, we heard real end of the world stuff. And I love how even he says, so so who won? We did. Oh yay. <laughs> we won. Good for us, right? Like good that was that us. was a great plot point. Uh, and that was good good demonstrate a little world building there on the insularity of Earth, right? Over the last mm. year and with 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 President Clark like like really locking everything down and Captain Jack being like, war? It, what, what are you talking about? You know, the entire galaxy is like in the middle of this giant war and and humans have no idea what's going on. Like that's, no. that was a really interesting point, right? It was like, it, holy shit. And JM, JMS in this episode has a series of little plots, but he ties them together with these things such as Mars is in the dark because of this embargo that they've had on them because they've been locked down. And then that ties directly into Ivanova's plot where she is having to figure out how they are going to survive during this embargo or what's another thing that we have to get past or we have to get weapons we have to deal with the black market but they are afraid to deal with us because of the ramifications that could befall them if they collude with us so even if that that scene in itself with jack is a brilliant scene that that fully demonstrates the the dictatorship that earth has over mars but jms doubles down on it even more and helps it connect to Ivanova's scenes, which you could argue could be put in any other episode. Like, you could slot those in any other episodes because it is a very in-stasis plot. But the fact that he does have this brilliant scene with Jack talking about how Mars has gone through a similar situation earlier, and this could be your future here on Babylon 5. So when we do cut over to Ivanova being the boss that she is, it gives more weight to what is a fairly uh, fairly minimal story. It's two scenes, three scenes of Ivanova dealing with this stuff, being told that she has to deal with it, then she does, and then it's over. It's not the most beefy story. It's not one that you go, oh, yes, that great Ivanova plot line. Um, uh, Mike, I just want to ask you, I mean, Ivanova's usually a fan favorite. We all usually love Ivanova, but how do you feel about... Um, the the I guess the Sheridan slash JMS tendency of Ivanova's the character that has to deal with some like uh little petty or like somewhat consequential business thing that Sheridan doesn't want to be doing. No, it's so like, funny. Like even from the beginning of season two, right? Ivanova's the one that actually makes the station run. Like like right. it's it's actually shit's actually happening and fucking works because Ivanova's running it, right? Like and and in this episode, yeah, she's like she's like, well, I'll take care of that. And Sheridan's like, I mean, it's it's so cute, kind of the dynamic, because you can kind of see he's sort of like, I really wanted to get rid of this fucking thing. I hope she takes it. And then he's like, we have this problem, and she's like, I'll do it. He's like, are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure? You know, is that, that that like that like I really want to get rid of this, um, but I'm going to pretend I don't want to get rid of it um, for like five seconds there. And she's like, no, I can take it. He's like, oh, thank God, uh, <laughs> you know, but. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it's kind of a minor plot. It's it's fairly inconsequential. It makes sense that we would address it, though, because hello, like if you're cut off from Earth, you're going to need to like you got to address that in universe. You can't just get everything you need. Right. There needs to be some sort of 
back channel or like this a subplot that explains how you're getting all this shit otherwise otherwise like we're just in star trek land and you're replicating it right like it doesn't it doesn't make sense so i mean i like it i like that she gets shit done as always i mean ivanova is is competent and you know sheridan's off wondering god yeah ivanova's god god. yeah it's it's i mean she's great i i i you're right though it could have been slotted anywhere i like that they slotted it here though as you said though it really tied with the with the whole captain jack and the mars being sort of embargoed like it it, it, thematically those work together well and i think that was it was good to put this in here i think it was it was the right place to slot it it made sense so with the Ivanova stuff, Rachel, you particularly enjoyed when we were watching it together. You had a good giggle at how Sheridan doesn't want to take the day off and she has to yeah. co- like command him to go away. Yeah. She's just like, no. No, this is happening. This is happening. And I love how he like tries to stick around and he's like asks the one question about Marcus and Franklin she answers him and then he tries to get more and she shuts him down like no John that didn't actually work I just answered your question now go I never give up when I, I never give up when I know I'm right <laughs> <laughs> she has that line about uh you haven't had a break since then and you, you've been dead once which can be pretty tired dead. dead at least once, once and we all know how tiring that can be <sighs> Yes. God of God of is just such a such a strong character. Oh, and I love the way that she deals with all of the black market people and like threatening them and like the dude who's like, Oh, my arm hurts when it rains and she's just like, Well, it doesn't rain here, so you should spend more time on Babylon Five. <laughs> It rains in down below. I just want to point that out. There are spots where it keeps raining in down below. We it, we talk it, about it. It's misty there. Avonova's just such a strong-willed character. Claudia Christian always is nailing it with this performance. There's there's this thing where uh, I, I still get a hang up on this because you know, growing up with television from this era, especially the '90s science fiction shows. I would always kind of roll my eyes at a lot of the, a lot of the female characters because they were usually treated like trash. They were usually, oh, Deanna Troy didn't even know that she was the highest ranking member on the bridge at this moment because she's too <laughs> stupid. And like, or, 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 you know, if we're lucky, maybe there's an episode where Torres remembers that she was a marquee and she's super strong willed. But like, a lot of the times they would throw like boring romance plots at them. Like Major Kira is a strong character, but she has like fifteen boring romance plots. And what I love about Ivanova here, just this moment, she just stands there and gives them this look of, "Yeah, I just said all of this stuff, and you're gonna do it because I said it." Like yeah. you could, you guys could beat me or up, or I'm gonna fuck you uh, up. And this guy hits on her, and she has this look of, "Whoa, he just fucking hit on me." But you know what? I'm standing my ground. I, I, I'm going to win this because I'm right. Yeah, I'm Ivanova. Like th- this I I could fight back, but now is not the time. The thing about uh, Ivanova too, I, I've said this on the podcast. She reminds me of my sister very much. But that's the thing. Ivanova is one of those science fiction characters that reminds me of people I know. This is people I've worked with. This is people who's taught me. Like Ivanova's like a, a, a character that I 
can look at and see that this is a person that I've met in the real world. And that's one of the strengths of Babylon 5 is you have so many characters like that. You just have a whole cavalcade of relatable characters that have their strengths and their weaknesses. But yeah, her her scene is very small and uh, it doesn't take up too much space. But again, it's another it's another uh, piece in the puzzle of Avonavu is just a badass. And a possible clue as to why Garibaldi now just shaves his head. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the whole little jab about... How are you to know that that would make Mr. Garibaldi's hair fall out and all of the black market guys start giggling about that? That was... I love how much of a nerd JMS is where he has to explain in the show like why Garibaldi is bald now. Uh, You don't need to JMS, but you did it anyway. Everyone's entitled to a fresh start. You're even willing to forget about that business? Yes, even though it did make Mr. Garibaldi's hair fall out. You had no way of knowing what was in that bottle, and that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, just in case he asks. Rachel, we've been actually enjoying the Garibaldi Season 4 arc. We actually have been liking it and looking at it, so I just want to touch base. Uh, Garibaldi, what did, what did you think about him here, butting heads with Sheridan? He's a fuckwit. That's it. That, 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 that sums it up for me. He, he's being a fuckwit. But that is a result of the manipulation from the psychor, and even knowing that, I'm like, oh, you're playing yourself, Garibaldi. And I love the way that Jerry Doyle is doing these subtle things still. Of like, he sort of looks like he's questioning why he's doing certain things. He catches then, it. He catches himself, but then yeah. he still does it anyway. And then he's like, "Oh fuck it!" Like when he grabs the woman, there's this sort of look on his face, like, "Is this? No, no, no! This is the right thing to do." Yeah, he's questioning why is he doing these things that he's he's doing. I uh, when when it comes to Garibaldi's conversations with Sheridan, though, even though we know he's programmed and an asshole, but this is a part of him that's just amplified and. Do you think, uh, even knowing what the twists are, Rachel, do you think JMS does a good job at giving any sort of credence or validity to what Garibaldi is putting down at all? Oh, I don't, but I see how you could. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those cases where you have actors being honest in the character. So you have Bruce Boxleitner doesn't play it anywhere near what uh, Garibaldi's saying, but on the paper, on the paper, you could actually see how Garibaldi sees it that way with the action Sheridan has done. But Bruce Boxleitner doesn't play it in any sort of way like that. Bruce Boxleitner is also just too damn charismatic where you go, oh no, he's a fine man. It's, It's Sheridan. He's too dumb to think he's Jesus. Yeah, I, I like I like that dynamic. I, this is an uncomfortable part of the show for me. I don't know. It sounds like you two don't dislike it as much as I do. I, I have difficulty when I have two characters, both of whom I really like. And then those two characters who historically have been friends, 
really hate each other for a while. Like, and this, this actually, I don't know if you've ever watched the West wing, but this actually happened on the West wing as well. They're, they're the president and the chief of staff were two characters that were basically best friends. And in the middle of season six, there's like a 10 or 15 episode stint where they just start fighting. And by the end of it, they just, they're, 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 they're hating each other. Right there. And, and in this as well, it's like, it's like Garibaldi and Sheridan have been through years of shit together. Right. And, 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 and then, you know, Psychor fucks with him and, you know, turns up that aspect of his personality where he's a little, little more paranoid and, and Garibaldi just turns, you know, as Rachel said, turns into kind of a fuckwit and you, you really <laughs> kind of hate him for a while here. And, and you're just like, but, but you can see his point, right. When he's like, you kind of have a Jesus complex. I mean, hello, uh, you, you, you died and then you came back and it get any more messianic than that. Right. Like it's, mm. it's, it's a bit like his points on paper. Like you said, Ryan, the points on paper are valid, right? Like it's, it's like, that's not the way Sheridan's being, but you can see kind of the points of someone with that kind of personality would be in that situation be like, you know, we're going a little too far here, aren't we? Shouldn't I question this a little bit more? Yeah. And be the it, guy to punch a hole through yeah, it. Yeah, it's his response to the facts that are the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And he does have an emotion behind it. He tries to my favorite exchange in it is when he does give the messianic figure all of this stuff and Sheridan just goes, shoots it down immediately. It's like that's an excuse for crummy behavior. That's just that's just false. You're just being a dickhead about it. And you're sitting there going, Yes, yes, finally someone's just saying this to Garibaldi call because everyone's him been out. call him out. Everyone's just been sitting there going, Oh, okay, Garibaldi, like, oh, you're a little you're bit be- funny. Yeah, you're being a bit weird but okay you quit your job your reasons slightly made sense but they don't feel right when i i have not always been favorable towards this garibaldi plot line because it is a gamble to make one of your characters that people like for the most part just an out and out asshole for a whole season it's like hey for a whole season we're gonna make this guy who is kind of the heart of the group from the beginning now the prick and it's a gamble that i haven't enjoyed in the past i'm enjoying it now because we're analyzing and reviewing it and we're looking at all of the i still hate it yes (laughs) i see the validity in it i see the reasons why jms does it and it's it's satisfying in a way Uh, but i still am like fuck this plot a part of my critique that i've had of it and i still think this holds some weight because jms is a writer that's super aware of the things that he does but he also feels like the need to justify them you come into season four and he's made his character jesus like Mm -hmm. he's made sheridan come back from the dead and he's like this figure that is going to unite the world to do the right thing And that's one of those critiques that is often slammed against when writers make their characters a messianic figure. And so it's like JMS has an in-the-world reason, like, no, see, it's not just that, because I have Garibaldi critiquing that as well. See? See, he's critiquing that. I pointed it out, so you can't make fun of me for it. Yes. This is a JMS thing in his writing, though. He often points out the plot holes or the, the tropes or whatever. Yeah, like how did Kosh shake his hand if he's in an encounter suit? <laughs> in, in an attempt to be like, look, if I point out the giant plot hole, that means it's not a plot hole, right? It's like, uh, uh, I don't know if that works that way, but yeah. It's not a hole in the wall, it's a feature. Yes, 
we're we're actually making it a part of the narrative and it, it it's supposed to enrich and i don't know again i i i want i just wish that garibaldi's points like were had more validity within the text itself yeah. rather than us looking at it on the paper because again you never think you you never have a moment of questioning Sheridan in any way because Bruce no. is just so damn smiley and happy and nice, and you have these and the scenes in the he defends the woman that Garibaldi's basically attacking. You're never on Garibaldi's side. No, and it would be much more interesting if you were persuaded a little bit. Yeah, and it like wasn't. So much like it was with Nightwatch, with the evil dudes that come in. Or with Zack even mm. as a character embroiled in an obvious evil, where it's like you felt bad yeah. for him, but also you knew that this guy's a bit of an idiot and you hope they'll work out. Garibaldi is what I call the conflict plot, where you have a serialized show and you have that one character who is going down a road that will just generate conflict. So when we meet Wade and his men, I know... I sit there and I roll my eyes going, okay, yeah, Garibaldi's going to enter the conflict plot where he's going to team up with the obvious evil people and he's going to fuck over the crew and it's just going to be that thing where it's like, now how many episodes do we have to wait for this to unravel? Because that's the thing is we know and we know from the very beginning of season doomed. four that something's wrong with Garibaldi and you have to wait for the crew to realize that and or for Garibaldi to f- fuck everything up to a degree where... There's almost a point of no return. I mean, how do you feel just about that, Mike, of just Garibaldi is, in a way, the the driver of conflict within this season? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it, the, the way the conflict plot. And I think you're right. It's it's I, I, I would like it better if if Sheridan had gone a little further, gotten a little more Jesus-y and made some decisions that make us question Sheridan's character, right? And then... And then you would see, you know, Garibaldi's response and be like, maybe we'd still be on Sheridan's side, but it would be sort of like an 80, 20, 70, 30 something. Whereas the way it is, you know, Sheridan, as you said, Sheridan, uh, Bruce Boxlotter plays it so, so straight. Like he obviously doesn't want to be Jesus figure. You know, that, that scene where the woman in the hallway is like, you're him. You're, and he's like, no, you know, please, like, no, I'm not. Right. <laughs> and Garibaldi's just sitting there going, going, uh, obviously you are. Right. And it, it's, it just, it kind of, it, again, it, it, it takes that character that we like, Garibaldi, and it kind of shits on him a little bit. Right. Cause it makes him be the conflict dick for a while. And, <laughs> On uh, as like a plot arc goes throughout season four, and as it eventually re- resolves somewhere near the end, I can't remember exactly where, right? But and eventually they're friends again, right? It's a great, it's a great sort of plot arc if you look at it on paper. But watching it is not as fun. Like it's it's a no, little no, uncomfortable, right? It's a just major not fun. a major void, and this isn't the show's fault at all. We all know the produ- production reasons why, but a major void in this is they're not friends they've always just been work colleagues at most they've been friendly but you always wonder i wonder too this was you know jms has the bible he plans all this stuff out this always has felt to me like this would have been sinclair this would have been sinclair who was a religious man uh you know garibaldi and him were the best of friends you felt that friendship i always imagine like in a moment where sinclair would punch garibaldi you the audience would feel conflicted about that but when 
when when Sheridan punches Garibaldi, yeah. or when Sheridan gets punched by Garibaldi, I'm sitting there going, "Yes, awesome!" Like, and 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 mm. Sheridan stands up and gives his Bruce Box like a raspy, like that one's for free. But next time, I'm not. I, and I don't feel conflicted about the fact that these two are physically fighting one another. Right. But I would if it was. Sinclair and like that thing you said of like you could easily imagine Sinclair having this because he was a religious guy he was a Jesuit and and Michael O'Hare carried that spiritual thing in him mm-hmm. but we obviously can't have that because of what we know but I I do feel the this was a leftover idea for Garibaldi and Sinclair to have this conflict with each other I've always I've always felt that and I think that makes it a little bit hollow because in all honesty, I don't feel that dismayed by this because I, I never no. think of Garibaldi and Sheridan as best friends or friends. I just no, think of them as like, people who work yeah. together. And they have a particular kind of bond because they've worked together in these kind of circumstances. But it is not a genuine and deep friendship in nearly the same stratosphere it, as Garibaldi and Sinclair. Is it hilarious that we have a relationship that's been there for two seasons and I don't feel like they're as connected as the relationship Marcus and Franklin has in this singular episode? Yeah. I was, I, I was going to make that point. <laughs> I don't buy it. It's just a cheap excuse for crummy behavior. Bottom line is you're misusing your authority and I won't have it. You want to be mad at me? Fine, you be mad at me. But don't hurt everyone else just to get at me. Sheridan is uh, trying to have a day off and Delenn is there to say, hey, you don't do that often enough. And when you do, it looks like your head's going to explode, by the way. You you really don't know how to... I love her line about, like, if you can look more unhappy, please don't tell me. <laughs> Delenn is uh, in in flirty mode this episode. She's, she's all cutesy and giggly and... It's nice to see that after having just come off the episode where she's all sad at the fact that she started the Earth Minbari War. It's just nice to have a bit of a break from sad, yeah. angsty, and uh, also powerful Delenn to just have her sit, stand here and say, hey, we're in a relationship, you know. And you know what we haven't done? Fuck. Just, we haven't fucked yet. Rachel, you're a big Delenn and John shipper. I am. So, uh... Talk to us all about what's happening here and your thoughts on it. So, Delenn goes up to John, finds John in the garden because he's pacing around like an angsty little bitch that he is. I got to use the garden set again, too. It's been a while. Yeah. yeah. Got to get some money out of that set. It's mandatory. And it's the couple garden because there's the little couple in the back. Background. Yes, you noticed this. Canoodling. Yes, there's a background extras that are a cute couple that are also getting intimate yeah, and kissing two, and holding hands. It's aliens. a nice little background detail. Yeah. And I like that it's aliens because it would be so much easier for production for it to be two humans. And they're, they're not even in focus. They're no. out of focus in the background. I, I wonder, and I don't know because we only see the back of the head of one. I would be curious if they were both aliens or it was an alien and a human. Because uh, the woman that we see is an alien. But I don't yeah. know if we see the guy's head. I don't know. Nerds, look for it. But uh, um, So and she's just like, hey, I have another ritual for us to do. And he's just like, oh, come on. Do we have to? She's just like, it's important to me. She holds out on the juicy detail until the very end, 
which is it's sex, John. It's sex. But she still holds back the details of people will be listening. Valen made this, by the way. <laughs> Sinclair made this little ritual. Let's Sinclair's a freak. Just yeah, uh, I'm I'm Is anyone surprised Sinclair is is an exhibitionist and or no. uh no. Yeah, yeah, no, like, no. Uh, I made this rule so that my great 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 daughter can fuck this guy that took over my job. <laughs> one of the things that I, I, I really appreciate about this is uh I actually like, I know some people don't, but I think this is good to have. I actually like that Sheridan gets frustrated with how many religious ceremonies there are yeah. and that he does not gel 100% of the time with Minbari culture, that no. he does find it a bit of a hurdle to jump over because Sheridan is a character that I think needs more dirt and mud thrown on him in this yeah. show. And He's even if it's perfect in, and tolerant of everything, even if it's thing. just something as inconsequential as this little kink in their relationship, and it's not even to say that he he he, he hates it. He he gets over it, but he does have that another ritual. Must we do another one? And I can deeply relate to that as somebody who's grown up in in a Catholic background and all that. There's so many moments of pomposity as a kid where I'm like, must we do another? the thing like this and the answer is yes Ryan I'm like no I don't I don't want to do that but I will I guess and I just like that even with that happening Delenn still relates it to his human ceremonies and his human customs that she's had to go through in their relationship like it's just a two way like street this thing was important to you this thing's important to me and yes for your one thing there may be 47 of mine no no 50 50 yeah 50 <laughs> because the Minbaris, yeah, obviously Delenn being our main Minbari, the religious cast, there is a level where JMS almost pushes it to the extent of like, oh my god, it's so it's got to the point of a, a joke of how religious the religious Minbari are, and this walks right up to that line, and I I think it goes over it. I I I will get to the actual sex ceremony, but. <laughs> Mike, what do you think about this little scene here? And just the, the the John Delenn relationship. I'm not too sure uh, how you how you feel about how that uh, has developed over the course of the show. You know, I like I, I liked the John Delenn relationship, even though it was obviously a bit predictable, even from relatively early season two. Right, we kind of knew where this was going. Pretty. He looked obviously. at her, and his eyes bugged out as soon as it's he a saw her. Yeah, slow exactly. Burn. It is a slow burn, though, right? It takes us two seasons to get to the fucking, which I, I don't know. As a gay man, I'm just really that long. Uh, <laughs> it takes them so, but like, but you're not. A it wi- takes them longer. To have their first kiss than it does from kissing to fucking, right? But he's a widow. And to be and to be clear, like to be clear, if she wants to fuck, she has to make sure she lines up the schedules of at least eight other religious cast members and Lanier. Including a friend. And put them in the room, right? It's yeah, it's I thought it was hilarious. I thought the whole idea, and I didn't know the the backstory about Valen being the one that that made this this bullshit up. That totally makes sense. It's yeah. a, we can assume that because it's just like, well, they were uh, they were a mess before Valen came in, and he gave them all of these structures and rituals. I love ritualized, ridiculous exhibitionism. Like I, I didn't know. Like I knew Sinclair was like a kinky bitch. I didn't know he just transferred that to all of Minbari society, though. That's that's hilarious, actually, on some <laughs> level. Okay, he fucked so hard that he corrupted their DNA. That's a plot point. Yeah. So, you know what? 
It's an obvious thing that yeah. he would do this. I'm going to say it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. The Minbari sex ritual, that, that has always been where I go, no, don't, no. I find it okay. funny, but I always roll my, I always go, JMS, stop it. Stop it. You're getting into the Star Trek, ter- get- you're getting into the Star Trek territory where the alien culture has this one truly ridiculous thing that we laugh at and it doesn't feel like it's real to me. And I get that it's funny. It's there to be funny, funny. And I get that. But also I just go, <sighs> don't just no, stop no. it, man. You little horny. Cause JMS <sighs> is horny too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I get held up on one particular line. Oh yes. Is you, it you woohoo? Pro- no, no, no. Which is an amazing line. I love the woohoo moment. I love that Lydia is like, you ruined the sanctity of this ritual with woohoo. Bill Mooby's line delivery on woohoo is, is top notch. Yeah, top notch. One of my favorite linear moments in the whole show. No, it's they're outside of the room. Not, not just to listen. But to make sure things don't go too far. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean exactly? What what it, like are we are we are we not allowed to go like what what is too far exactly? Yes. I mean, if you've got a, if you've got eight people watching, I mean, even if they're on the well, other she side does of the, close wall, the door, they so listen. they're just listening. Uh, anal. <laughs> but still, yeah, I was I was about to say, is anal too far? Like, I don't, I don't know what you straights do, what you think is too <laughs> do Do Minbari, do Minbaris have buttholes, uh, JMS? Answer that. I, I thought we were going to be alone. I mean, what are they? They're here for the ritual. While we discover one another's pleasure centers, they wait outside to pray and meditate and ensure that things do not go too far. It is our tradition. We've all had sex. Has anyone said woo-hoo during sex? Only if you're role-playing as Sims. Oh. Yeah, it's one, it's one of those lines on television that is written into television, and you're like, no one's ever done that. That's not a but thing. But would Sheridan do that? He, he is very corny. He mm. is pretty corny. That's true. But also, like, it seems like he's slightly embarrassed that he did that. <laughs> like that Lanier heard him do that, so it makes me wonder, is that a thing that he's just always done? Or is that him censoring himself? I woohoo and he fist pumps. He's a fist pumper during oh, sex. Oh yeah. yeah That's yeah. Sheridan, and he's a spanker too. But I, I said that so. I think Sin, I think Sinclair no. is a spanker. I don't know if Sheridan's Sin, a spanker. Sinclair, I'm not sure. Sinclair, Sinclair, fucked so hard he needed frictionless sheets. That's the type of guy he was. Yeah, which I'm just like, how are you on the bed? You'd fall off. Um, but he's fucking so hard that they stay on <laughs> somehow. I don't know, but we have to talk about it. Lanier is there. And Lanier, as we know from thanks to JMS making it miserable for Boomumi, Lanier's like a freaky little incel uh, that is in love with Delenn and he wants to be with her and she has him there to listen to her fuck the guy that she wants to be with that isn't Lanier. And that's just... One of those things where it's like, I want to keep turning my eye away from Incel Lanier because Bill Moomy doesn't play him like that. Like, Bill Moomy does not, but uh, the script keeps telling us. And uh, this is one of those moments where it's like, you can't 
you can't avoid the fact that this is just another damning piece of evidence in the weird tapestry of Lanier's character. Uh, Mike, for you, uh, what are your thoughts on Lanier? Are you saying that you think Lanier requested, or are you saying- No, I think he. I think it degraded him to be there, and it's just another reason why yeah. he hates their but relationship. it's just like, well, I'm a member of the religious caste, so and I, have to be I here. am like- sort of part of Dylan's family on the station so I have to be here. Woo-hoo. Yeah, like I, like I wonder how that how did how does the, how does the panel get selected? Like this is some kinky shit. Like any 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 variation of any way you imagine how this gets started just sounds weird, right? Like yep. like how does she select the panel? Are they family members? Are they friends? Mm-hmm. Is it just the like the it, does it have to be members of her clan or can it be any religious? Because Lanier isn't from her same clan. He's just a member of the religious caste. And because she's such a powerful and respected Minbari, does that mean that she has to get people who are equally respected? <sighs> Man, what I, I would have I killed if Naroon was one of the people's there. <laughs> that would have been That would have been a dream come true. Yes, Delenn. Ah, Sheridan, I heard you say woo-hoo. I, I would love that so much. Ah, Delenn, former Grey Council, I hear you moan. It's like, no, Neroon, shut up, shut up. But what do you think about Lanier in general and how JMS has put this angle to the character, an angle that has especially become more relevant in, in the real world and in media as well, this this the good guy. I'm the noble man who's your friend and I'm deserving of your love. What do you think about that, Mike? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is, I I always, I I liked Lanier as a character. uh, And then we get into, we get into the middle and late part of season four, right. And then in season five, when Lanier does take a full like incel turn and, and he's just like, he admits, you know, he's in love and all this other stuff. And, and it just, I, I don't know, I, I feel like it was definitely unexpected for me, at, at least when I was first watching it, that that was sort of the direction it took. I feel like there could have been other, like, we could have made the character a bit more interesting than that. Um, but but yeah, and in, and in this case, I mean, because he's effectively her chief of staff, right? Like, that's what he's been mm. for, you know, for his first, he, he's your, her executive assistant. And then after a while, he's like, really, you know, he's kind of like helping run shit. And and you know, and she's obviously this is Gray Council, and then former Gray Council member, extremely powerful in her society. It's it's I, I don't know. I I don't know if I love what JMS did with the character. You know, I I just don't I I don't love it. I think it could have been the way Lanier started. He was a very lovable character. Now that being said, I mean one of the things that JMS doesn't. You know, he does do it, but when he does it, as we've been discussed in this episode, he acknowledges it and even talks about it. Tropey stuff, right? Like JMS doesn't want to just make everything super predictable, super tropey. I love that Ivanova didn't have 15 romances throughout the show, right? Like she had that one episode in season one where the ex-boyfriend showed up and for like 20 minutes, all of us are like, oh, Ivanova, why? He's a sweater criminal. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> Get rid of him, right? Like he's terrible. 
Like, and I'm she glad doesn't. That you dumped him. He should yeah, stay like, out of like your Ivanova life. doesn't have a string of romances, right? It's not like we get a female character who's strong and it's not super tropey. She's not interesting because she's dating eighteen different men, right? Throughout the throughout the 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 show. With Lanier, I'm sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it was a very non-tropey direction to take him. I don't remember a lot of other incels in sci-fi in the 90s. No. I don't e- even now, even now, I can't think of too many in this regard. It's it's definitely a talking point that has become more relevant over time. But I think, and we've talked about this, and I'm curious if you feel the same, I was just happy having a nice positive relationship between a male character and a female character that wasn't romantic. I was just happy with that. That was good enough for me. That was good enough. It didn't that- need to it didn't need to add the extra layer. Woohoo. Mike, have you seen the film Spotlight by any chance? I have not. Actually, wow. you know, you you mentioned it in in uh, yeah. I was listening to one of your episodes, and and you were talking about Spotlight and how everyone loves Spotlight, and I'm like, I don't. Oscar winning film, Michael. Did you know Michael Keaton's in that movie? Yeah, I and I'm generally a big fan of Michael Keaton, especially first Batman because he was wow. first Batman, Mr. Mum himself. Yeah, going Michael that far Keaton. back. Yeah, yeah um, got to go further I, back. But I haven't I haven't seen Spotlight now. But are you aware of our spotlight section on our on our podcast? I am, and I am so happy who we have chosen to spotlight today. It yes. is such an exciting spotlight. Oh, do we, you watch a lot of Santa related content? Well, well, let's 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 introduce the spotlight first. We are talking about an actor or an actress that appeared in the episode. Big role, small role, minor recurring guest doesn't matter. We talk about them. We go over their character, their performance, their career, any interesting pieces of trivia, and we're looking at Captain Jack himself, mm-hmm. played by Donovan Scott. And uh, okay, I'm just going to come in red hot. This is the worst guest star performance we've had since season one. <laughs> I'm just calling. No, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm calling it now. I'm countering you. I'm going to counter you. I don't think the performance was that bad. I think you're mixing up the accent or lack thereof. That's a part. That's a part of the that's, performance. That's a major part. That's a decision that he made. The he performance made and the enthusiasm of the actor, I think, was entertaining and amusing and fun. The, the the accent or lack thereof, and I love that I'm talking about this with two Aussies because very clearly the first sentence out of this guy's mouth, he was trying to sound what an American thinks an Australian sounds like when they haven't actually met very many Australians. Yeah. Mm. that's what he was trying to sound like and then he's he's british British. and then he did there's a whole sentence where he gives the lita had a little a little vol on and all that and he's just full american he doesn't even do an accent for that yeah it was his accent was a fucking train wreck why was it written in the script and then he had to do it like why why the accent i don't where somebody somebody tell me why somebody listening or somebody in this discussion Tell I, me what relevance Captain Jack being not American had. I used the bullshit excuse with the B5 boys that it's because he's trying to establish that something's wrong. So he's doing a, an over-the-top accent. The keeper's making it. He, <laughs> I don't know. No, I, wish, I wish number and one. that's I, why it's so inconsistent. I wish, I wish number one said, oh, Jack, why are you doing a funny accent? <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> yeah. It would. Oh, it would have been. God it would have made, made it so much better. And I just now think that in my head. When oh, I watched- blimey, number one! It's me, Captain Jack. Oh boy! And she's like, number one. Are you? I mean, Captain Jack. Are you all right there, Mister? Oh, I'm a yo 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 me. Like yourself. 
Oh no, I sound like old Captain Jack. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't separate I can't separate the performance with the accent because the accent is the performance. Yeah. This is one of those characters <laughs> where the accent is the character in a large part. And there are and and he poor Jason Carter. He's there. He's British. He's standing next to this guy doing an accent. And and they've had they've had British and Australian people on the show before. Uh-huh. Why can't they Somebody if they out there that they could have had that. Somebody out there tell me why this had to happen this way. As we were discussing just a few minutes ago, the actor who plays Naroon was born in Pasadena. The actor yeah. who plays Captain Jack was born in Chico. These are two parts of California that are, you know, within mm. a few hundred miles of where I am right now. Both of these actors tried to do accents. One of them succeeded. You wouldn't believe half the stories we've heard about of Babylon 5 this last year. Such as? Crazy things. One story had your lot coming in here with an alien fleet to take over the whole operation yourselves. (laughs) I agree. He has the enthusiasm. He has that warmth. He has that jolly quality to him. But you cannot get over the fact that every second word is a completely different voice coming out of this man. There's no consistency whatsoever. It is. You might have convinced me. It is true. It is. It is just. I. I. I but I, I. Okay. We have to. We have to delve into this for just a second, though, because I am talking to two Aussies, and honestly, I don't talk to two Aussies on a podcast uh, ever until now. Um, so, which part of Australia that may or may not exist was Captain Jack from in those first couple of sentences when he was Australian? I am curious because I'm not say, familiar. I would say Darwin. I would say he's yeah. from Darwin. Yeah. So the interesting thing about Australian accents is. Is there a lot uh, of variation? Because, like, England no. is like London's really different than Birmingham's oh, really here's, different here's, than here's, Scotland. Here's the thing. Here's the thing I'll say. Here's there the thing is, I'll say. But it's... We don't have the America thing no. where America, you can go, this person's from this place because of their accent. No. It's more, we... this person's from a rich background. <laughs> we have different, like, societal things. So it's like bogans is a term used yeah. for the very kind of more, uh, I guess, your red, your redneck, redneck equivalent. equivalent. But we have bogans, which is what Kath and Kim is in a way of that series. But we also have uh, the ones of an older generation that have that slight British twang yeah, to the them. RP. But uh, the, the, he's what he's doing here is what we would call an an ocker accent, which is kind of what Paul Hogan has in Crocodile yeah. Dundee, which is also also known as the broad Australian the broad accent. Australian accent, which. Is kind of a from an older generation now. Ocker also had many slang terms that they would like to throw in there. So Ocker is far more of that uh, put another shrimp on the barbie, mate, that type of thing, which mm. was from people who you know my parents' age or older. But that isn't as strong now. That has evolved nah. into other things. So he's doing that, and that's why I say Darwin or Northern Territory because that's kind of an area that still very much inhabits that. Yeah, but is it is it so? It's like it's like sort of the equivalent. If we were to do a British equivalent, it'd be like a, it'd be like a middle class British, uh, like a London accent, or even not a Cockney, mm. but but more would it be like that, like sort of yeah, a middle I think class, co- you know, Cockney or kind of a bit of a Northern accent going on. Yeah, Northern feels Northern. more correct to me. But uh, he is sh- such a strange performance in an episode that is riding that line with all of the the tones he comes in and he just throws Makes a bomb ridiculous. into the scene he is ridiculous 
Marcus is a ridiculous character, but Jason Carter rides that that qual that tone so well. But then this guy's here is going, Oh beef struggling off. Oh, I'm eating this lovely food. Oh, don't you want some of this insta heats? <laughs> it was like full cockney at that point. I was like, wait a minute, what happened? Are we did did we move from Australia to London? What happened? I- uh Rachel, you've looked over this actor's career, Donovan Scott, and you, you stumbled across a fun little revelation about the type of roles he likes to play. Oh no. He just fits a type. So he gets cast as Santa's frequently. He is a real life Santa. I looked him up. Yeah. He he still does Santa stuff when Christmas well, rolls around. As he gets older, the more Santa he the becomes. The more Santa he gets. And he can grow an excellent beard. When I found out he was Santa, I was a little bit surprised because yes, he's he's he, he, he's you know, rotund. He's, he's a he's a, he's a big guy and he has a beard. But I looked at him here, going, ah, I guess I need to see you as a Santa to see it because he, even though he's a big guy with a beard, that isn't enough to be a Santa type. But once I have seen him, especially more recent times where he is white, uh, silver haired, and all that, I'm I'm looking at him going, yeah, you're a Santa, aren't you? You really are. And he has played Santa Claus in so many so things. many things, but the. See, there was a slight problem, which was when I first watched this, I'd already seen him as a Santa. (laughs) In what? Bones. He's Santa Larry in Santa and the Slush. (laughs) For all the Bones heads out there, you know what Rachel's talking about. He is an iconic Santa to me in television, and for many people who are fans of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, he's very memorable. He's the Santa Claus that Charlie screams at and attacks, asking him, did you fuck my mum? Did Did you you fuck fuck my my mum? It's an iconic scene. It's one of the great scenes in It's Always Sunny, and he is that Santa. You get to hear him ask, "Is, is, is this kid, is this kid... Retarded, like even he is like, do do I say that word? I'm Santa Claus, <laughs> and I I I rewatched that scene just before this because it's been a while since I've watched it, and it is him. It's distracting. It's Captain Jack. Ho ho ho! You're a big boy, aren't you? <laughs> is he retarded? I got this one. So, son, what would you like for Christmas, huh? Did you fuck my mom? What? Did you fuck my mom? Yeah, he's he's just a quirky guy. I liked the performance just because it seemed so clear the actor was trying so hard to <laughs> to 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 just make it work and I appreciated the enthusiasm even though every other line was a different accent. But yeah, I have an Another thing to note. Yes. Yeah, uh, which is that this was pre-COVID. And I couldn't find anything specific, too specific about it. Um, but apparently for a while he was having like weekly comedy shows mm. at uh, one of the uh, – a theatre production. Because I, I saw that uh, he was called a – Scotty and Friends. I saw in some of the information that he's a, a drama teacher, an improv, improv teacher as well. So that makes sense. I could tell from obviously this performance is comedic, but you could tell that this guy has a 
has a comedy leaning to him, yeah. very similar to. Yeah, I don't mean their performances are the same, but when when uh, Jinxo was uh, on this, you could tell that that guy is not like a, a TV actor. He's like a impro uh, improv guy, and I got that vibe from this guy. Where like he's a guy that when I looked up his Facebook page, he does like Santa Claus. Like he does yeah. it at like public events and venues. He's very much I can tell is like a a live performer, but not just a live performer. But he's a guy that does it at strange locations not just on a stage he's a guy that's doing it at the mall or at this place which yeah. is a talent all on its own mm-hmm. no no boat acting no no boat no. acting not even for andreas yeah he has yet to act on a boat either but uh <laughs> that that i agree look i i i find his performance just tough to swallow because i could sense an australian accent there and whenever i f- meet fake australians there's always telltale signs like yeah. for instance you you've been calling us uh, oh, uh, I can't even do it. Aussies. Aussies. No, Aussies. Just Aussies. We we the make Z. it. A, we make it O Z sound, not Ness. It's always little fun details like that that can trip up accents. Yeah. So when it's fun for it's fun for me to see fake Australians going no. Like when we watched The Good Place and they had a whole season oh, or two. Oh god, that was so awful. And then they had real Australians in the cast as well. Uh, and you could tell. I could like, tell. What? I'm like, you're Wait, real. You're yeah, saying you're saying like, things what? correctly. Barista banana muffin man. He was a real Australian, but then like the main chick. And it was just like isn't. you actually like, sound like you're from Brisbane. So the Australians <laughs> strike again. I have difficulty because I, as an American who does actually very easily able to tell the difference between a British accent, an Australian accent, and a New Zealand accent, it pisses me off when actors who should know how to do this shit because this is their fucking profession can't get an Australian accent and they make it sound British, or they go too far and they make it sound New Zealand. And I'm like, no. It's, yeah. tough. It's-, it's a tough accent to nail. I think one of the more recent performances that I think did a good Australian job was uh, um, Dev Patel in uh, Lion. Yeah. He sounded like a, he sounded like a, 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 a Melbourne guy. Yeah. You could tell a little bit that there's a British thing there, but... Nah, he sounded pretty pretty mm-hmm. good. That's one of the more recent entries of like, oh, someone yeah. who isn't from here doing a pretty pretty decent portrayal. But it still wasn't perfect because I never be- is. I believe he was meant to grow up in Tasmania, not in Melbourne. That's true. He sounded too Melbourne. Tasmania has their own little accent. Yeah. But uh, that is the spotlight section. Donovan Scott still out there working, still doing his bit. Seems more he's gone away from TV and film, at least on yeah, IMDb. It's been a couple last of years. Credit was twenty seventeen on IMDb. IMDb. I want to know what his experience on Babylon 5 was like. What Did he stress about the accent? Did they surprise him with or that? Or did he think, was like, he I can do this? Was he doing improv and oh, each take no. he was doing a different accent? And Jason Carter's just getting more and more mad. No, uh, uh, Captain Jack is not the sort to push himself on others when he's not wanted. I was just going to offer to share my dinner with you. You know, uh, brothers of the great space highway are going to stick together. <laughs> We have an Im- important question to ask now. An answer. On our binary rating system of yum being bad and yum yum being good. No half yums are allowed, Mike. You're not no allowed to give all a yum and a half. half yums. Only full yums. It's one or two. Those are your only options. Good or bad, yum or yum yum. I think this episode is definitely a yum yum. Yum yum. How could I not give it a yum yum? Yum yum. This 
is the embodiment of a yum yum. When I ask who would have said yum yum in the episode, the correct answer is the episode itself. It just, it is vibrating with it all over the place. JMS must have hit a couple too many NyQuil's when writing this one and just was having, having the yum yum spirits within him. But Rachel, what about you? You're the, you're the final one. Yeah, this is one of my favorite episodes. I I love how fun this episode is, and it's an easy yum yum from me as well. Yum yum. It's time to hear what we, Rachel, will be watching and talking next about week. next time on Babylon Five. On the next Babylon Five. Lines. Of Communication, episode 11 of season four. Rachel, how does it feel that we're, we're, we're blasting through season four? I'm happy. You're happy about that? Yeah. Well, let's see how happy the crew of Babylon 5 are going to be in Lines of Communication. Sheridan lays the groundwork for the broadcast that will counter ISN disinformation. Meanwhile, which is a word they use a lot in the DVD descriptions, meanwhile, Franklin and Marcus try to win the support of the Mars Resistance. See, Marcus is important enough in that one to see, get see, mentioned. Marcus gets mentioned now. Are you happy, Mike? So it's fu- that's funny, though, because like this is the episode, I think, where Franklin starts fucking his way to the top. I think that's what's, what's happening here. Lines of communication is the one, I'm yeah. pretty sure, where it ends with Marcus outside their bedroom as they're yeah, fucking. Yeah, It's I two episodes in a row of people this, listening to people uh, yeah, fuck. This one, like, they don't quite get there. Like, they're setting it up, and she's like hunting franklin she she wants to go out on a date with him first yeah. she's a she's 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 not a whore yeah it is next by the word where we get like is this how you treat all your ex lovers she's she's a resistance leader she's not just going to get down on her knees and start going to town on franklin immediately she wants at least a bit of a dinner first oh I don't feel like she would go down on him at all. Well, well first yeah. off, on Grey Sector Pod, we are very sex positive here, so we have no problem are, with horrors. But we, we are, we are as well. In all fairness, you know what I said before about Sheridan being a spanker? Wrong. Franklin's a spanker. That's canon. Next episode. Oh yeah, That's canon. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I could, I, I could see that. that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you hear a little spank and her go, "Oh, Stephen." So. <laughs> That is all we have for everyone. You can find us on your social media of choice under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. We post on there regularly. You can interact with us on there. You can also email us at yumyumpod at gmail.com. All of this is in the description below, as well as uh, Grey Sector Pod's information. But please, Mike, tell us all where you can be found, where where people can find your podcast and uh, what's happening on the pod. Yeah, Gray Sector Pod on uh, Apple or any of your other podcast services. And of course, we are on Twitter at Gray Sector Pod on Twitter. Sarah runs that one because she is a master of the memes. Um, there's Very some funny really, memes. Really fucking funny memes. She comes up with some stuff where I'm like, shit, that's really good. Um, so yeah, go follow us on Twitter and or, uh, you know, because subscribe to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure. I hope to have your other hosts on at some point as well. But you and I have been talking to each other a lot. I was like, oh, I got to get Mike on at some point, and then we can get the other two on. But I, I hope to have them on at some point to discuss all of these crazy antics that the Babylon 5 crew get up to. Maybe even one where Jakar himself appears. Because. No Jakar this episode. No, but we never get this great line from Jakar ever again. It was the gathering 
And nowhere else. Nowhere else does Jakar say the famous non-farewell. Do you remember this phrase, Mike? Do you remember the famous non-farewell? In The Gathering, he says to Takashima, and he says it like full, like this is a non-thing. He smacks his chest and says, good eating to you, Commander. And then he walks off. (laughs) Lieutenant Commander. And he never says anything like that ever again. He still does the chest thing, Mm -hmm. but he never says it. But we don't forget. Nope. Nor should JMS have forgotten that Mm -hmm. and the power rings. We never forget the canon that is the gathering. So we will say it on the behalf of the episode that did not. Good eating to you. Good eating to you. Good eating to you. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs>